It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ every weekday morning from our studio on the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So we're going to start a new season right now uh, of... See, you're coming in, a lot of you just arrived for a semester, but for those of us that hang out here a lot, we've been, we do something every morning called Daily Thunder. And so in the off season leading up to this, we've been in the studio, and today is a transition day where we move into uh, the chapel for our live uh, Daily Thunder edition. And so to be honest, I'm rather excited about it. Some of you didn't even know that that was happening right now. You're just uh, poking your head in thinking we're starting a session. But no, this is actually something that uh, is, uh, is delivered in a podcast, and you can actually access this message uh, anytime after this. And so over this summer season, I am going to be going on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays through a series, and you'll be able to catch it. Of course, if you uh, leave after five weeks, you're going to miss the final two weeks because it's going to go seven weeks. That'll say there's an alumni summit that's after this. That's my uh, plug for that. And it's going to be called Spiritual Lessons from the Life of Alfred the Great. And it is it's very exciting to me. I, I'm just uh, leaning in with expectancy. Nathan, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, is going to be going through a series called The Christian Mindset. And, uh, but for us, this whole thing of Daily Thunder, which we've been doing, what, what is it, Nathan, over two years now? Uh, and we're in the 600s, I don't know what the number is, of, of episodes that we've released. But it's a significant commitment that has kept Nathan and I very, very sharp. Because to do something, whenever you put the word daily on it, we, we've talked about, what are some of our other names we were thinking of doing? Scattered thunderstorms? <laughs> it's like there's something about the daily which is like, wow, this just doesn't stop. It's, I remember when Hudson was born, uh, just the thought of like when, when the baby's in the womb, you know, as a, as a the father, you're not feeling it kick, you're not you know sort of uncomfortable at night, and so it's it's you know it's you, you feel for your wife, but you're not going through it, and then suddenly the child comes into this world, and you're so excited, and then it starts crying, and then it needs food, and then you're not getting any sleep, and you're just you have these momentary thoughts of like sticking it back in the womb. It's like, can you do that? And that happens with Daily Thunder. It's like, can we change the name of this thing? But it really has been a, a precious experience for us. So let's dive into this. Uh, and I, I've been building this for quite some time, and I'm going to give you a little backstory on that as we go. But this one is called The Unlikely Hero. And uh, so for those of you that are unfamiliar with Alfred the Great, uh, my point in delivering this isn't to just try and impress you with historical knowledge or understanding of Alfred the Great, even though you will gain both. Uh, it is to explain a spiritual reality while I'm doing it. And so sometimes utilizing different templates that are different than our, our typical way of thinking actually help uncover things. Uh, and that's part of what I have been exercising in my own life over this past year, especially, and I'll go into that. But The Unlikely Hero. So there's two books that are going to start this, what we're going to be unpacking. So I might as well get you acquainted with those at the very beginning. The first one on the left is called The White Horse King. 
and the subtitle, The Life of Alfred the Great. And then on the right side, for those of you that uh, have hung around me, my middle name is Winston, and I happen to be a Winston Churchill fan. And uh, so The Birth of Britain uh, is a book that Winston Churchill wrote after World War II. So last year I did a series called Spiritual Lessons from World War II, and I used as my sort of chronological template, I used the... uh, the writings of Winston Churchill, his memoirs of World War II, which are extremely profound uh, because he was in leadership in both World War I and World War II. He's the only leader out of any nation in the world that was a leader in both. And so his perspective, of course, being prime minister of Great Britain in the midst of World War II is extremely fascinating. So I used his, uh, his writings as the basis. His writings on this are fascinating because he's actually showing the history of how this island formed to what it is and in at least 1956. And very fascinating, but it's not as exhaustive as this other book is on Alfred the Great, because it's not specifically on that. But those are two books that you'll see me reference uh, quite a bit in this. For those of you that missed uh, Daily Thunder last year, I went through a 93-episode series on spiritual lessons from World War II. And for me, it was just like sucking on candy the whole time. It was very, very fun and deeply profound. For those of you that can't imagine hearing about World War II and having it be moving, uh, it is is very, very powerful how history was leveraged but to teach spiritual truths of how the battle, the spiritual battle that we are engaged in works. Very, very fascinating. I highly encourage you to dig that up. Maybe while you're during a semester here at Ellerslie, it might be hard to go through 93 episodes in your spare time, but it's very, very encouraging. So we're going to launch into a different series, and here's our guy. Now, this is like a statue of King Alfred. So King Alfred of Wessex. You see, when he was alive, he wasn't called Alfred the Great. That wasn't his name. Uh, He was just Alfred. And technically, the possibilities of him being king were so remote And that's part of what I want to draw out in this very first episode is this quality that we are going to see come out of his story, which parallels with the times in which we live. In fact, I would say it parallels with our own soul. See, we live in a world under siege right now. I'm 50, and you'll notice the age on uh, Alfred when he dies. He's 50, so that's sort of, I don't know what that means to me as as I teach this. But it is also somewhat profound to me to realize that, you know, this 50 is, uh, here I am uncorking this, this, these te- this teaching on Alfred the Great at the same age he was when he died, which, you know, the average age in this season of the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages are an odd time. I don't know if any of you have ever had that thought go through your head, where everything seems a little bleak and dark and almost gray, like it lacks color and... Uh, you don't even know what to do with the Christianity during that time. It's just sort of weird. And so as a result, it's like, did everyone in this season just go to hell? <laughs> what, what was going on here? Because it, I mean, it's called the Dark Ages for a reason. And it is an odd season of history. And yet in the midst of it, there are lights that shine. And even though Alfred is not like this picture of what I would call doctrinal perfection, which was hard to find back then because of the lack of training, the lack of discipleship, this man feared God, loved his word, and wanted to serve God with his life. He's a, he's a surprising picture in the middle of this island called Britain uh, back then. It's like, where does this guy come from? And uh, so, but at this time, 
and you're going to see the age of him, you know, 849 through 899 AD, which is not a time that most of us are experts in. It's not the most fascinating time in history to study. It's like, even if you look at the ninth century, like Google it in Wikipedia, like what happened in the ninth century, you're not going to find anything that happened in the ninth century that's at all interesting. It's weird. You know how you could pick almost any other time in history, it's like, oh, wow, oh, that'd be interesting to look into. No, not in the ninth century, except for this. This is one event that is going to shape history. So much of our history here in this country is going to flow out of what is happening here. This is foundational. That's actually not the reason I'm interested in it, though. I'm interested because it parallels what I feel we're going through right now as the Church of Jesus Christ. You see, they're just an island nation, and they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable as long as they stop watching their shoreline. As they get comfortable and cozy in their little native state, then they become vulnerable to outside influences which want to make their way in. And these outside influences in our teaching over the next 20 episodes is going to be the Vikings, oftentimes called the Danes. So if you happen to be Danish, I'm going to have to throw you under the bus with this one. Uh, however, just know from the very beginning, the name Eric is a Viking name. So, I mean, it's, it's tough. I'm lugging around a Viking name and they're the bad guys in this. What's funny is when I was teaching in World War II, I'm German, and the name Eric is very German-esque, okay? And even one of the guys that sponsored Hitler's rise into power, his name was Eric Ludendorff. <laughs> my mom's maiden name is Obendorf. Of course, my dad's name is Ludi. So you combine all that together, and basically I'm Eric Ludendorff, right? I mean, it's like horrible. And yet the guy, t and then my middle name's Winston. So it's like, okay, which one's going to win out, the British side or the, uh, the German side? It's sort of like this. You know, I, Winston Churchill, very British, and yet I have Eric uh, surrounding it. And so it's like the tension. I feel like it's my own life is this battle uh, for Britain. And so in this, you're going to see an encroaching evil, and you're going to see a nation succumb to it. You're going to see a nation literally fall to pieces before it. Not altogether different than what you feel right now is happening around us. And if the question, and I, could, I could take this story and I could push a pause button, I'd say, okay, if you're a betting person, who do you think is going to win? Who do you think is going to control this island moving forward? And I could guarantee you almost every single one of us in here would say, uh, the Danes, this is going to be a Viking island from this point forward. And yet it's not. What in the world happened? Well, that's what I want to talk about. You see, there's a turning of the tide. There's something in boxing called a counterpunch. A counterpunch is the, a smart, seasoned veteran boxer is going to actually study his opponent. So you get this young buck in there with this veteran, and he's going to just start throwing punches. The veteran is studying his weaknesses the whole time. And for a while, it looks like the veteran hasn't even thrown a punch. And the veteran, you know, even the announcers are like, you know, I don't know what, he's, he just seems off his game. He hasn't even thrown a punch. However, he's studying. He's studying the weaknesses. And at one point when that young buck overextends, you get the counter. You get the movement that is the right, right size, right speed, right placement that is going to give the knockout blow. And so it might be one punch in, a, in an entire uh, boxing match between two guys, but if you throw the right one, it wins the game. And that's exactly what's going to happen in this. You're going to see one guy, one guy in a nation stand up and do something that no one else does. 
I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. And that's Alfred, okay? So as we go through this, you're going to recognize why he's known as Alfred the Great. It's pretty impressive. So here's an English proverb. We're, we're hanging out in English territory here, so it, it's appropriate to have an English proverb. A hero is a man who is afraid to run away. You can just let that one sink in. That's a strange proverb, isn't it? In other words, you know that you can't run right now. You know that if you run, your nation will fall. You know that if you run, your family will fall. You are actually more afraid of the consequences of what would happen if you turn and run hightail than if you stand your ground and even die. And there's something about that that's, that's fairly profound. So Edmund Burke uh, says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. So we live in a generation where it seems that darkness has the upper hand. And yet, good men don't know what to do right now. There's a lot of people that think like we think, that actually have values like we have. And yet, to know what to do right now, to know how to stand right now, it's paralyzing. And oftentimes, good men are doing nothing. And we could throw in the word good women, uh, too, are doing nothing because we don't know what to do. We're too afraid. We're paralyzed. So Winston Churchill, this is just going to be a commentary on a guy named Alfred the Great. And he says, without any coherent national organization to repel from the land on which they had settled the ever-knowable descents from the seas, the Saxons now for four centuries, entitled to be deemed the owners of the soil, very nearly succumbed completely to the Danish inroads. That they did not was due, as almost every critical turn of historic fortune has been due, to the sudden apparition in an era of confusion and decay of one of the great figures of history. Now that's classic Winston Churchill, where most of you are like, okay, I hear him making some sounds up there, but I don't understand any of them. I love Winston Churchill writing. Was, oftentimes you have to read it twice, though, right? So basically saying that there is no organization in this country to repel what is happening. And the Vikings have been salivating. They've been arming. They've been plotting and planning for a long time. And they know Britain can't stand against them. And so as a result, this onrush of evil comes into this island known as Britannia at the time. And even without any organization, even though it looked like all had fallen, somehow this man is going to rise up in the midst of it and push it back. And that's what he's saying, okay, in, in case you didn't understand his paragraph. Who is this great figure? Well, his name is Alfred of Wessex, but he's the fifth son of a king. The king's name is Ethelwolf. Isn't that a cool name? Ethelwolf. And he's the fifth son. So in the order of kings, in the divine right of kings, it's always in order of birth. And as a result, the likelihood of this man ever being king is so remote, so ridiculous, that it falls into a Davidic range. David was a seventh son. In one, in one spot, you could guess that it was the eighth son of Jesse. There's no way. I mean, Jesse lives in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a little diddly squat town in Israel. There is no way that David would ever be king. Uh -huh. And that's very similar. We have a David-like situation here. So why is he considered great? 
that'll, I'm going to unpack that, but I'll let a few different uh, people. Oh, here's our, here's our quote again. I'm going to read it again, see if you can understand it this time. I'm trying to warm you up to Winston Churchill. Because remember, my middle name is Winston, and I feel rejected when you reject Winston. So, without any coherent national organization to repel from the land on which they had settled, the ever-knowable descents from the seas, the Saxons, now for four centuries, entitled to be deemed the owners of the soil, very nearly succumbed completely to the Danish inroads. That they did not was due, as almost every critical turn of historic fortune has been due, to the sudden apparition in an era of confusion and decay of one of the great figures of history. So the Romans are going to come in in first century, second century, somewhere in there, I don't remember the exact date, and they are going to stake claim to the land of Britain, Britannia. And it's hard. If you hear me call it Great Britain, you can know I just went through World War II for 93 episodes. It's really hard for me to rename an island here. But so the Romans are going to come in, but Romanism is actually going to be converted to Christianity. I mean, of all things. Isn't that strange? So the Romans are controlling most of the known world, but then as a result, these missionaries are going to come through the Roman system on the Roman roads and under the Roman government and the Roman occupation to actually begin to bring Christianity. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's an incredible part of history too. And so this island is actually going to become a Christian island way back uh, in the second, third, and fourth centuries. Then we have the fall of Rome, which is going to call all of Romans back to Rome to defend it. And they're going to abandon the island. They're going to leave their infrastructure without any governing authorities. They're going to remove their soldiers from the land. So the island of Britain is actually going to be vulnerable. It's going to be left to what we could call the Angles and the Saxons. And so as a result, these are men and women that are actually groomed in Christian thought. 400 years are going to pass, and this is where we are now. And so we're in the middle 800s where there's this vaporous remain of Christianity. But you know, they have monasteries and, you know, you have monks and things like that lingering around. You have bishops and, you know, you still give, you know, sort of the, the Pope back in Rome still gets his due. But no one really remembers why we do this. Just we're a Christian nation. Doesn't that sound like us? I don't even know that we'd call ourselves a Christian nation anymore. However, we have this vaporous remains uh, in our country as well. And so as a result, in the midst of that, we are going to see, even without infrastructure, Without a, a, a global national military, without the ability to really defend this nation, this great figure is going to rise. That they did, so this is my shorter version of the Winston Churchill quote, so you can sort of appreciate it. I'm trying to, again, win you over to Winston Churchill. That they did not give way to the Vikings was due as, an almost, as almost every critical turn of historic fortune has been due to the emergence of one of the great figures of history. This is... a I just want to pause on this and see if you can wrap your mind around this. In every dark period, God seems to raise up rescuers. It's just his pattern, which is why you hear me communicate with you. You know, we had banquet last night to say this is the time you want to be alive. I'm not calling you Alfred the Great. However, if you are the unlikeliest to be a rescuer, then I sort of get excited. In other words, God loves to use the raw material of unlikelihood. And so we have a tendency to not see anything special that God could possibly do in and through our lives. 
And yet I believe that we are the chosen vehicle, we're known as the church, that he desires to use in this time to change the world. So a 13th century rabbi named Nachmanides said, precisely at the time where one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and save us. This is an important lesson for future generations. So the Jews would repeat this. And so in World War II, when the Jewish uh, people were under siege, remember Hitler? I mean, but Hitler, that, that whole idea of anti-Semitism was spreading wide and, and deep in that time period, just like it is today. And this is the reminder that the Jews had, that God has always risen up a rescuer. And you read the book of Judges, there was always a judge that would come. And then you'll see that throughout history, that in their darkest hour, there will be men or women that will rise up to defend them. And so in World War II, and the reason I think this is fascinating, it was Winston Churchill. See, I, I, I keep getting back to Winston Churchill, but Winston Churchill grew up and his father was good friends with Jews. And so he was cared for oftentimes by Jews. And so when he hears what Adolf Hitler is doing, it so appalls and offends him. And so he becomes one of the great champions for the Jews during World War II. And it's not because he was Jewish. He was not that great of a Christian man. He was a Christian man. He would have said that, and he quotes scripture every now and then. But not in the sense that we would say, oh, come on, Winston, you could be so much more on fire for Jesus than that. And yet God is going to raise up a man in the darkest hour to defend his people. Profound. And so here's David... Ben-Gurion, prime minister of Israel, he was the first prime minister of Israel in the reconstruction of Israel. He says, Winston Churchill lifted an entire nation out of the depths of humiliation and defeat, instilled in them the spiritual strength to stand against heavy odds. If not for Churchill, England would have gone down. So we're not just talking about the Jews, we're talking about an entire nation. This island would have gone down if not for one man rising up. So isn't it interesting that here's Winston Churchill saying, looking back and saying, and there was one great figure in history that's going to rise up and save this island. Well, that's exactly what he did. So here's, I'm going to just say the tales of antiquity. Like, out of history, this is a statement of fact. If not for Alfred, England would have gone down. And everything we know about England now is going to be completely different if not for this one man. So the broken island. So here's a picture of Britain. It's not the full picture of Britain. Uh, right around 848. So some people say he was born in 848. Some people say 849. I'm choosing 849 because it makes him 50 when he dies, right? And so that's symbolic to me. And so you're going to see it's, it's a broken island. It's not just one nation. It's broken into multiple nations. And so Wessex is when, when we call him the king of Wessex. That's that blue uh, country down there. And which also, I don't know if you can see sort of the small dots over the bottom part, but that's also sort of under the reign of the king of Wessex. They're separate nations, but they're under the king of Wessex. And so you can see at least four major nations, and most people would describe it as seven because they're going to take some of those smaller ones and describe them as separate nations. And then that white portion is going to be what we know as Wales. And so here, look at the top. You're going to see I'm putting some dots across. That would be the line for Scotland up north. So there's a lot more up north, which is Scotland. And then I put London down there just to give you some, some placement of where it was. It's at a strategic location where rivers meet. And so uh, that at least gives you an idea of ancient to, uh, to now. 
So the evil island invaders, they're going to mess with this island long before 865, but 865 is when this onrush is going to take place. Sort of like if we could say uh, the island invaders of this country, it was 2020. Boy, they came in like a flood. Well, they'd been messing with us for a long time. However, there was something about this last year that felt like evil just stepped onto our property. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? And we felt it. You felt an encroachment of darkness. And that's very similar to what's going to happen in 865 on this island. So the big idea of this entire series is legendary heroes are revealed during legendary challenges. Most of us don't want legendary challenges. Even the word challenge, you know, doesn't sound good to us. And yet, it's in the darkest hour that you're going to see the brightest lights shine. And there's something about it. When you're, when you're proving military men, you have to stick them into battle situations. And there are certain men that will rise up. And it's not always the ones you're expecting to rise up. Because there are men that look very good on paper. You know, they went to West Point. They got high grades. But high grades at West Point doesn't make a great leader. It might make a great mind, but it doesn't necessarily make a great leader of men. It doesn't make a brave or courageous man. And so as a result, it's the testing that proves the character or the metal of a man. And so as a result, it's when you go through those extreme fires that it draws out the true nature of the men or the women in that generation. And there are many that will cower, that speak really boldly. Remember Peter, he's speaking boldly, saying, I will die with you tonight. But then the fire turns up and he denies him three times. And that was showing Peter something. It's that in and of himself, he doesn't have the stuff. And God has to prove each one of us that way. But Peter is going to have the stuff. 50 days uh, later, that's what Penta means, Pentecost, 50. It's the 50th day. You measure seven sevens, and then on the next day, the 50th day, is a day called Pentecost. It was the day of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. It's the giving of the instructor, the giving of the teacher, if you want to say it that way. And now it's going to be the giving of the Holy Spirit. Peter is going to receive something that he needs. And now he's going to walk into the same city that just crucified his Lord 50 days earlier, and he's going to boldly preach. He denied Christ before a little you know, slave girl, and now he's preaching before an entire city? I mean, what happened to this guy? Well, the same thing that must happen to all of us. Legendary heroes are revealed during legendary challenges. Alfred the Unlikely. That's a pretty good name for him. You see, there is no way that this guy is going to change the world. He is not in a position to do that, starting there. But even that, you know, I, I, you're just not going to figure that in if you look at his life. So uh, here's Dr. Benjamin Merkel on it. Uh, in the year AD, AD 849, Osberg, the wife of Ethelwolf, remember Ethelwolf, he's the king, uh, king of Wessex, the Anglo-Saxon kingdom in the southwest of the island of Britain, gave birth to the king's fifth son during a stay at the small royal estate in the town of Wantage on the northern edge of the Wessex border. Alfred was the last child born to Ethelwolf and Osberg, his oldest brother being more than 20 years older than him. He's actually 26 years older. With so many brothers between him and his father's crown, it was quite unlikely that Alfred would ever ascend to the throne of Wessex. The four Ethels before Fred, Alfred. So the four preceding sons had each been named with variations of their father's name. Ethelstan, Ethelbald, Ethelbert, and Ethelred. I know some of you are writing these names down going, this is some great names for my kids someday. 
And here's a good one for the ladies. Uh, this is like what you can name your daughter. And even the Wessex king's one, one daughter, Ethel Swift, carried this element in her name. The Anglo-Saxon word Ethel meant princely or noble. But Ethel, the Ethel element was dropped off for his fifth son, Alfred, meaning elf wisdom. So can't you, don't you just feel sort of like ostracized in your own family? Uh, it's sort of like David not being invited to the, the party with Samuel when he came to anoint a king. It's just like, well, yeah, we have one more, but you know, he's not an Ethel. Uh, it's, it's like he wasn't a part of the, even the naming processes here. It's like having all of your kids' names start with a B, and then you get to the, you know, the end one. It's like, yeah, you know, let's stop that tradition here. It's like, why would you stop here? There's something very special about this young man, but it's not obvious. In other words, we represent something very similar. We are the least likely, if I could just say it, I've studied a lot of Christian history. The church looks so pathetic right now that it is hard if you were to say to me, this is going to be the greatest generation of Christians ever. It's like, yeah, right. Okay, that's the same story we're dealing with here, and that's the story of history. God loves taking the weak and showcasing his strength in and through it. So the principle of unlikely, there is a first and there is a second. So you'll hear me say this quite a bit if you're going through the, the training program. So I always put the, on the left side, well, this is my left, it's your right, but I always move over to my left when I'm dealing with firsts, and then I move over here for seconds. And I don't even move that far, but it's you know, enough to make a statement. So firsts and seconds. You see, Adam is a first. Jesus is a second. Even though he's 77 generations after Adam, he's a second. He's called the second man. Isn't that a weird statement? He's the last Adam. There's two men. You're either in the lineage of Adam or you're in the lineage of Jesus. Two. You pick which one. One is condemned to death under the, the judgment for sin, and the other one is set free and is clothed in righteousness and is being brought into a bold entrance into the throne room of grace. And so you choose which one you want to identify with. It's interesting, but the first always appears stronger to the natural mind. And it's a weird phenomenon. The first is always preferred and appears more ideally suited. Okay, so Esau, for instance, is a first. So you have Esau and his brother Jacob who were uh, twins in the womb. The first one comes out and he's hairy all over, okay? And he's a hunter. Have you ever heard the description of Jacob? It's really awkward. He was a plain man dwelling in tents. Is that the worst description of a man you have ever heard in your life? So you have the hairy hunter and you have the plain man dwelling in tents. And yet which one is God going to choose? He's gonna choose the second. Okay, all throughout history, you're going to have this. You have Cain and Abel. Okay, you have a first offering and a second offering. Which one does God select? It's the second. You have Ishmael and Isaac. The first one is a product of self-effort. The second one is a product of supernatural working. And God is going to choose the second. God always chooses the second. I'm just going to cut to the chase and get right down to it, okay? For whatever reason, even though there is a reason, because he's choosing Jesus, ultimately, as the second man, you see, the first can't save, the second does, but the second doesn't look the part. So my other illustration is Eliab. Remember when Samuel comes to anoint a king and Eliab walks in and he's tall and strapping and he just looks the part, and Samuel's thinking to himself, there is the next king of Israel. And God has to correct him saying, look, 
you look at the outside, but I see something different. This man doesn't have the stuff. He looks like he has the stuff. You know who else looked like he had the stuff? Saul. You should read the description of Saul. The first king of Israel. He was a massive man. You could call him the giant of Israel. Most of us don't ever think of him being a giant, but he was head and shoulders above all Israel. He was a massive man. And all of Israel's like, yeah, yeah, there's our guy. And yet, he's rejected. God's going to choose the second king. You guys know who the second king of Israel was? His name is David. It's the second one that God chooses. And you see it even in this story with Eliab. Eliab walks in. He's the firstborn son of Jesse. And God's like, no, no, no. And it's the second run of bringing someone into the house that we find the guy. He's the one out. We didn't even get invited to the story. He doesn't even have Ethel in his name. He's not one of the, you know, the, the, the ones that Jesse would say, this is my group that you could choose from. His name is Alfred, or in this case, David, in the story. All right, we got another Winston Churchill quote. Are you guys warmed up for Winston Churchill? This is a little easier to understand. I have to admit, that first one was pretty tough. In the early frigid months of AD 878, the whole of Britain had fallen to the savage dominion of the Viking invaders. The Saxon kings who had fought against the Danes had either been cut down in bloody combat or captured and executed in a gory sacrifice. A few lucky ones escaped the clutches of the Vikings and fled the island in humiliating defeat. So we're skipping forward a little, and I'm not breaking down the story much, right? Because Alfred is going to come into his kingdom, and he's going to inherit the throne at 872. Okay, now I haven't given you any story of how that happens, so just trust me, it happens. Obviously, I'm guessing you filled in the blanks to know he becomes king somehow, some way. But what he is going to inherit is the worst situation any king could ever inherit. I remember thinking that of the pastor, I don't remember what his name is, uh, of like Times Square Church in uh, New York, of he's he's passing off from Carter Conlon to him right at the end of March and April 1st of last year was going to be his first day to take over a very influential church in downtown New York. And I thought, that is probably the hardest assignment any pastor had this last year. What a thing to inherit when everything shuts down and you're in the city of New York, of all places. So, you know, it's, that's about right. That's what, that's what Alfred is inheriting. Only one Anglo-Saxon king remained to hold off the Viking assault, King Alfred, the young king of Wessex. This is the story of the Anglo-Saxon's greatest king, the young man who, though driven from his throne and hunted everywhere by his savage enemies, refused to give up his fight for his nation. Okay, so what I want you to do is I want you to catch something in this, is that there is something in this resolve to say, I refuse to give up ground that is so needed in the church right now. This is the king, this is Dr. Benjamin Merkel, this is the king who took a war-weary band of Anglo-Saxon men hidden on the small swampy island of Athelney and led them from where they teetered on the edge of extinction back to face their enemies once more on the battlefield. This is the man who later kindled such a flame for Christian learning in the hearts of his people that he launched the greatest literary renaissance that Anglo-Saxon England ever knew. Who is this guy? This is the story of the only English king to be known as the Great. He is the only king that has that. He was a seasoned warrior, a scholar, a poet, a lawgiver, an architect of towns and ships, and a zealous Christian. Alfred was great because Alfred was a great king. The impressive list of unlikelies, David, Gideon, Esther, 
Joseph. What you're going to see is the scriptures are like a tapestry of this very construct. That God doesn't mind utilizing weak things to showcase his strength. In fact, it's his design to do it. You see, look at the greatest picture of strength that has ever been exhibited on earth. The crushing of the serpent's head, the defeat of uh, sin, death, the grave, the flesh. It's all (laughs) happening in and through weakness. God himself is going to come as a baby. Even when he does his great work of salvation, he looks weak. Isn't that just an amazing thought? That he is going to allow himself, he's going to humble himself and become obedient unto death. A lamb doesn't look strong, and yet he is going to be a lamb of sacrifice. You see, there is something in this that is very, very important for us to catch. We want to impact the world. We want to do something important. We want to do something significant. All right? Praise God. Then go low. Become as a lamb. Take the lowest place. Become a servant. You're like, well, God, no, 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 no. I want to do something great. Yeah, that's, I'm giving you the map for it. You take the lowest place, and God can use you in a mighty way. You see, to be the fifth son of Ethelwolf is the way many of us feel. We don't feel, I mean, we didn't even get Ethel in our name. And even when you, when you think about it, in the global history, probably most of us in here are Gentiles. To be a Gentile is not that impressive. If you're reading through the Old Testament, by the way, we're not that uh, impressive, We're the ones that need to be wiped out. We're the ones living for ourselves in sin. We don't get it. But that God is going to choose weak things like us to showcase his strength should deeply humble us. And we should say, God, I don't know why you'd want to use this, but if you do, please, here I am. David, he shows up against Goliath. He doesn't even wear the armor. But he goes as a shepherd. And even Goliath is thinking this is a total joke. What am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? This is ridiculous. This is hand-to-hand combat. How in the world are you supposed to win when you don't even have armor? You don't even have a, a sword. You have, what, what is that? Some stones? You see, God is going to take down Goliath in a way that proves His power, not David's. Gideon, there's no other way of explaining that one. That's 300 against, it was like 215,000. I mean, this is like so ridiculous. The odds are so off the charts against Gideon, and yet he has God. Esther, one woman is going to save a nation. One, just a frail little woman, right? And she is going to step in with such boldness in the hour of need and she is going to change the course of history for a nation. Joseph, the rejected. Everyone thought he was dead. And yet this one guy is going to save a nation. God is going to raise up out of weakness. He's going to prove his strength. The Jonathan decision, seen past the allure of the first to embrace the power of the second. We're in a Jonathan position in our life. See, Jonathan is the son of Saul, Who's in line, the term is the heir apparent to the throne of Israel? Who would it be? It'd be Jonathan. Well, in your life, you're in such a situation. 
You have to make a decision. Because the world, the devil, are going to try and con you into thinking that the throne is yours in this body. This is your life. You claim it for yourself. And yet Jonathan is going to make a decision that looks like it's sabotaging his own future. He is going to choose the second. He is going to choose David. You see, that makes total sense to us because we want to choose David. We're fans of David. But you don't realize what he's giving up in doing so. He has to stand against his father, which is, we could call him the old man, and he has to choose the better man. He has to choose the one coming in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's very similar to what we deal with in our own soul. You see, there is an appeal to say, claim the throne for yourself. But as long as we stay here, we're under a just condemnation. Saul is not in a pleasant place in his life. He is rejected, and the best thing he could do is kneel and say, God, I sinned. You give this throne to whoever you deem fit and I will serve him. I am wrong, you are right. Instead, what is he going to do? He's going to preserve his throne. He's gonna throw javelins at David. I think if you count up the amount of assassination attempts of Saul against David, it's around 21. We don't wanna participate in that, of trying to harm the son of God who rightfully deserves the throne in our life. We need to be as a Jonathan, that even though this is our body and we can do with it as we see fit, well, you can, and you'll see what happens, or you can do as God would have you do, and that is to relinquish your throne, to give it to its rightful owner, the second man. So seen past the allure of the first to embrace the power of the second. 1 Samuel 15, 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So do you remember when Saul is going to reach out and grab Samuel's uh, robe and it's going to tear? That's the quote that's going to come out of Samuel. It's like, yeah, just like you see that tear, so God is tearing the kingdom of Israel from you and he's giving it to a better man. God has given your body to a better man. I know if you're a woman, that's a strange one. However, God has given your body. It is purchased. It is rightfully not even yours. It is his. It was bought with a price. The question is, are you going to behave as Saul and cling to what is actually not yours anymore? Or are you going to be as Jonathan and relinquish your right to a future reigning over Israel to say, but I trust God's ways are higher. And I believe that that is God's man. I believe God is right in removing the throne from my father. And I believe he is right in giving it to David. That is a huge decision that is even hard to fathom that Jonathan would make. And so look, look, look at this quote. This is a quote from Saul to his son Jonathan. This is how the old man, your flesh, will speak to you. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Pretty strong, stout words there. He's angry because Jonathan has chosen the better man. He's chosen the second. You see, it is totally unlikely that David would have been chosen for this part. It is unlikely that Gideon, that Esther, that Joseph 
would have actually pulled off the amazing things that they did. But God is setting a pattern. And what we want to do is accept his pattern and humble ourselves to say God chooses weak things. Moses, as I said last night in the banquet, Moses was ready to save the people of Israel. And yet he had to have 40 years on the backside of the wilderness to break him down to the point where he realized, I can't do it. And then God says, now I can use you. If we are willing to allow God to bring us down into that low place, he can use us to change the world. The Messiah comes in odd clothing. Isn't he supposed to destroy the Romans? You know, I've been reading through the uh, Old Testament. I'm in, uh, near the end of uh, Psalms right now. And it's interesting because I've been pondering this the whole time I've been going through it. And I would say it's reasonable. I can actually understand why the Jews would have expected a Messiah to come in and destroy their enemies. I mean, look at God in battle throughout all the ancient times, and you're going to see him destroy those that oppose Israel. And so when a, when a rescuer rises up, what does he do? He destroys the enemy. I mean, I, I could actually see it. You know, because you know, we oftentimes will look back with a new covenant mentality and go, boy, they blow it. How come they couldn't see their Messiah that he was fighting a battle much bigger than that of the Romans? And yet many of us miss God's purposes because we are sort of stuck in a mindset. This is how God needs to do it. This is what God will do. But God uses unlikely things. And as a result, we need to prep ourselves and prep our souls to recognize what God is doing and not what we presuppose. The bait for a counterfeit savior. Now, this could be dangerous, and I could get uh, a little closer to the edge uh, on this. I don't deal with politics in Ellerslie, and I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I'm just using an illustration. The allure of Trumpism and the strange propensity to miss the real hero, Jesus Christ. So if you come from a politically conservative variety, then you would understand maybe what that is. There was a movement, especially over this last year, when we saw such an encroachment of evil upon this world, where you could very easily put your hope in the wrong thing to bring salvation. And as a result, it's very, very dangerous for the church of Jesus Christ. We have a Savior. We have a Deliverer. We have one. Now, God can use men to create uh, effect and to bring about uh, different degrees of liberty and freedom and, and to win wars and various things. However, it's very, very significant for us as the church not to ever allow a counterfeit savior into the territory of our souls, where you begin to put your hope in the work of a man instead of the work of the man, Jesus Christ. 1939. So 1939, if this goes back to my World War II series, you're going to have what I could call the most unlikely generation to do something good. 1939 Great Britain was absolutely pathetic. In fact, if, if I were to teach you about 1939 Great Britain, you would get mad. You'd be disgusted. It is decadent. It is self-righteous, self-serving. It doesn't care what Hitler's doing. Let Hitler do what he wants to do. You know, let him have Europe. It's not our business. In fact, the whole you know, student union is like making a move towards parliament, telling them, we will not fight even if you ordered us to. We will not fight for this country. Okay, so now all of that, this is with the encroachment of evil, unlike, unparalleled with anything in modern history. What Hitler was doing was so disgusting. It's like Satan himself in a body. It is weird to study Hitler. It's disgusting. It really is. 
And Great Britain was like, you know what? We don't care. So in the midst of this, you're going to see something happen between 1939 and 1940. September of 1939, World War II is going to begin through the invasion of Hitler into Poland. I'm not teaching on World War II, even though I'm tempted to right now. And then in May of 1940, someone is going to come into a prime minister position in Great Britain known as Winston Churchill. And he refuses to back down. You're going to see something change in that nation, which is so profound because, and for those of you that know history, you're going to know that that generation of Brits are actually going to be called the greatest generation ever. That's a weird statement, especially if you knew what they were like in 1939. But something is going to happen in 1940, which is going to change a nation. It's going to change a nation's mentality, a nation's way of thinking, where all these people said, we will not fight, are suddenly going to lay down their lives gladly. What is that? And that is precisely what I'm interested in. That's precisely what I was teaching that thing about last year. In fact, when I was in my, in my notes, I don't know if it's still there, but I actually had the folder for all of my study on World War II, and it was called 1939. Because that was my entire message within, is like, this needs to happen to us. What happened in Great Britain needs to happen to the church. We need to wake up. We need to recognize that we have a common enemy and he is destroying us. He's dividing us. He's breaking us apart. He's causing schism all over the place. And we need to rally together around the cross and take him down. Uh, yeah, that's, that's spiritual lessons from World War II. But that's also spiritual lessons from Alfred the Great. It's sort of the same thing. It's like, Eric, are you just repackaging all those things? Sort of. In other words, it's the same need that I feel. So if, World War, if the spiritual lessons from World War II didn't stir you up, well, then I guess I'm going to have to go to Alfred the Great because it's the same thing that is happening. And I think it's the same thing that's happened throughout history, don't you think? The devil's been doing this for a long time. Sometimes the greatest generation is found in the most unlikely place. So 2021, I don't, I don't know if you guys know that there was a book written about your generation. I'm going to say yours, not mine. I'm innocent. <laughs> It was called The Dumbest Generation Ever. I don't know how you feel about that. But what I'm sort of wanting you to do is get a little upset over that. You see, you have inherited. Now, my generation isn't much more brilliant than yours, okay? So maybe mine isn't the dumbest ever, but it's not that far removed. We have been on an ever-increasing downward slide, into a, the abyss of selfishness and self-focus. Even the country of America doesn't have a clue what's happened in other parts of the world. We really don't care. It's very similar to 1939 Great Britain. And in the church, we are watching evil encroach upon our nation, and most churches didn't even gather last year. It's like we're not even mobilized to do anything right now. At the height of evil encroaching into this world, and we don't even do anything. We're like sucking our thumb. It's high time we awaken from our stupor. So I don't mind you guys getting a little stirred up being called the dumbest generation ever. I actually want you to fight back and say, that stops now. Could you imagine this generation becomes the most brilliant generation ever? I don't think that's the goal. But the greatest generation ever. I see no reason why 
this generation can't turn the tide on it all. Are we weak? Yes. Are we ready? No. Are we armed for battle? You know, one of the re- when, you, when you study this generation, it's the most unfit generation for military service ever because of obesity and because of hearing loss. Isn't that the weirdest statement? Because of hearing loss and obesity, there has never been a generation ever before that was less prepared to actually stand up and defend a nation. Isn't that just, I mean, it's just sad. (laughs) Even as I repeat it, even having it come out of my mouth, it's sad. So, can you get a better raw material for God to use? I mean, this is about right, okay? I mean, we're, we're, we're all broken down to pieces, you know, and we're not that impressive. Perfect. Now, God, here it is. Take this wreck. Take this dumbest generation ever and make it the greatest one. 2021, the most unlikely generation. Could it be that history is ready to repeat itself and that greatness is just around the corner? Here's my exhortation to you, is that we bend low and that we humble ourselves before the living God and we acknowledge that we're not that impressive. And God, in and of ourselves, we can't do anything about this. But if you would see fit to use this, you have it. You can take this, this body, this corporate body. Could you imagine if we actually humbled ourselves and gave ourselves to God like that and said, use us and use us now? 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Father, I ask that you would set something in order in our souls, a readiness, a lowness, a humility, and a high vision. Lord, that we would recognize that you are the God who rules the nations. All things are beneath your feet. Lord, this world will not be changed through our gumption and our grit and our determination and our wit and willpower. It can only be changed by you. But your chosen vessel through which you do your work is the church of Jesus Christ. So Lord, here we are. Use us for your glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Note that our live in-person version of Daily Thunder is scheduled to resume on weekdays this coming June at the Ellerslie campus in conjunction with our discipleship training season. 
Thanks for listening. 